give a summary of what we're looking at today. In Leviticus 9 and 10, we're going to explore three different types of fires in worship. The first one is the faithful fire, chapter 9, verses 1 to 21. And then we're going to look at a famous fire, chapter 9, verses 22 to 24. And then a foreign fire that was made in chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. How are these fires made? Why do they matter? What are the purposes behind these fires? What do they teach us about our discipleship today? How are they relevant to our lives? Well, we're going to find out these things just in a moment. But let me give you just a brief recap. The first seven chapters, and you can see at the top left on the screen there, the first seven chapters were all about the ritual sacrifices, such as the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. We learn all about these offerings. And now we're in this section, chapter 8 to 10, which is all about the ordination of the priesthood and the beginning of their ministry. It starts out really well, but it actually ends in a disaster, as we'll see today. They started off pretty faithful, but then they started lighting strange fires in worship. And it ended in disaster. And so last week, in sum, we learned that the priesthood is made ready for a life of worship. This week, we're learning that the priesthood discovers that lighting fire is dangerous. Would you let your five-year-old light fire in your home? Probably not. Well, there were similar risks for a brand new priesthood. They were quite young in their faith. They were quite young in this priestly task. And it was dangerous. They knew the risks, but yet they didn't follow the instructions. And so what makes their fire dangerous? Well, let's find out. First point, and they start off well. The Levitical, Levitical priests made a faithful fire. How did they make this faithful fire? Well, the priests had to, first of all, and this is important, and this is a principle that runs throughout the entire scripture, the priests had to submit to the word of God spoken by God's servants. And so on the first day of public service, Moses summoned Aaron, his sons, and the elders. Moses then commanded Aaron to make preparations for a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a fellowship offering. If you're not sure what they are all about, maybe go to some of the sermons I've already preached and I summarize and explain what they are. But after the entire assembly came near, the whole of Israel came near and stood before the Lord around the tabernacle, Moses commanded the priest to come to the altar and make atonement. Did they obey? Yes, they did. And we see the obedience clearly, for example, in the burnt offering. Through the prophet Moses, they were commanded to offer a burnt offering and they submitted perfectly to the word. The ram was slaughtered. The altar was splashed with blood. The ram was divided up into pieces. The legs and inners of the guts and all the guts within the animal were washed with pure water. The carcass was then put on the altar and fully burned up. And then if we go back to chapter 1, we learn what happens when a burnt offering is offered with um, um, obedience to the Lord. It creates what is called a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a smell that satisfies the wrath of God. And so Aaron did as he was instructed. Verse 16 says this, he brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way, a 
according to the custom, according to the guidelines. He did it in the prescribed way. The priests made faithful fire because they submitted to the word of God spoken through Moses. And I like just thinking about this practically for us. This is a principle that actually runs through the whole of Scripture. All instruction grounded in the Word of God has the power to make faithful fire. But how is this faithful fire made today? Commentators point us to Luke 24 when thinking about this. And I want to share this story with you. It's after Jesus rose from the dead and his disciples are dismayed. They feel like they've lost their Lord. The reality is Jesus has risen from the dead. And so after the death of Jesus, two broken-hearted disciples encountered their Lord on the Emmaus Road. But at first, the disciples did not recognize him. They thought that they had seen a ghost. On the road, Jesus then started a Bible study with his two broken-hearted, hurting disciples. As a new and better Moses, he taught them how to interpret the whole scripture. And what was the point of Jesus' Bible study? He said that the word of God, in verse 27, is all about him. All of scripture, from beginning to end, from A Z from Genesis to Revelation is all about me. Later on, when Jesus was gone, the two disciples talked about the instruction that they had received, and they said to each other these words on the screen: "Were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us?" And so, how is the faithful fire made? The hearts of the disciples were set ablaze with a biblical instruction that put Christ front and center. And so commentators see this illusion, this connection between Aaron lighting a faithful fire and pleasing God and Jesus, the much greater Moses and Aaron lighting a faithful fire, but in the hearts of his disciples. The hearts of his disciples is the altar on which he's lighting faithful fire. Likewise, hearts are set on fire when Christ is at the center, the front and center of our very ministry, of our very spiritual instruction. In other words, when a pastor or chaplain preaches more of Christ, the embers in our hearts the embers in the hearts of ordinary people begin to be set alight. When a mother magnifies Christ through her Bible-soaked prayer each day, her daughters begin to combust with the same love of God. When a father depends more on Christ in daily scripture reading, as he explores scripture and continues to meditate upon this and sees how every single scripture points to God, his sons are also set ablaze with the biblical truth. Hearts are set on fire when Christ is at the front and center of our spiritual instruction. God continues to light fires and he lights fires as we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. As we do that, our hearts are inspired and burn ablaze with the glory of our Lord. And so what does this passage teach us about Christ? 
Well, it teaches us, let me say it again, hearts are set ablaze with faithful fire when Christ is at the centre of our spiritual instruction. So keep that in mind because we're going to dig deeper into that idea in a moment. This brings us to the second point in the text. And so we saw a faithful fire lit. Aaron and his sons were obeying the command of God through Moses and they lit faithful fire. But now we see a famous fire on display before them. God revealed his famous fire to Israel. In the narrative, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, likely to commune with God, to draw near to him, to pray with him. After they came out, they then blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to them all. Verse 23, can you see it there? The glory of the Lord appeared to all. And what a sight it was. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and devoured the burnt offering on the altar. Verse 24. The sacrifices were completely consumed, testifying to the good pleasure of God. After witnessing this famous fire, the people then did something. What did they do? They shouted with joy. They praised the Lord. But it was also a solemn praise because they then fell face down. And so they saw something glorious, celebrated the reality that God's presence had been made manifest in their sight. And then they fell to the ground in complete awe at what they had seen. That's what happens when we experience the glory of God. We are filled with this deep, solemn joy and awe that often leads to a physical impact on our bodies. I don't know if you've ever had those experiences where you're reading something profound in the Bible and you just need to get on your knees because of how glorious that insight is or that revelation from God in his word is. You, you respond with a bodily reaction to the truth that you have encountered in the word of God. And that's what's happening here. The glory of God has been exposed before the people of God and it led to, in the words of Matthew Henry, the highest joy and the lowest reverence. The highest joy and lowest reverence. Israel encountered the glorious presence of God in the famous fire. But what is this fire? What is this famous fire that revealed, was revealed to Israel? Well, as you continue to read scripture, the scriptures begin to point this fire to a person. His name is the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 4, 4. And I've provided the alternative translation in the NIV here. It has two options. Isaiah 4, 4 says, The Lord will wash away the filth of the woman of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of fire. So the biblical testimony points this fire to, like, point, says this fire, this, the identity of this glorious presence. It's God, but who? It is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we witness this famous fire again in the New Testament. Before Jesus offered his body as a burnt offering, he promised to send this Holy Spirit to his disciples. Then when Jesus ascended to heaven, the famous fire was poured out upon the people of God before the mission of God started 
in Acts chapter 2. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to read this text for you. Because here we see the spirit of fire at work again. Similar to what happened with the con- con- like God consuming the burnt offering, we see the Holy Spirit coming in fire upon the church. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 3 again, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The famous fire was poured out upon the disciples and burned on the altars of their hearts. And there's an image on the screen there. When the glorious fire of the Holy Spirit came upon the church in Acts, when the Holy Spirit finally arrived, as promised, God convicted them. God forgave them because many people repented of their sins. God restored many people and enabled them to now be conformed to Christ's likeness. God called many people. God sanctified them and made them holy. God transformed them. He directed them. He empowered them. And then what did they do? Well, Peter is in a classic example. He got up and people were saying, what is with all these people? They're drunk. They're drunk. They're full of something. What are they full of? And Peter announces that the Holy Spirit has come. And then he testified boldly with courage, courage that we didn't see in the Gospels about Jesus being both Messiah and Lord, the promised one of Israel who had come and fulfilled all the promises of Scripture. This happens. The Holy Spirit's come. Jesus is true. He is risen and ascended on high. And so the Holy Spirit empowered him to begin to do the work of witnessing in the ancient worlds. On this great day, the church was born. The famous fire of the Spirit was poured upon a thousand hearts. Souls were kindled with pious and devout affections towards God and a holy zeal for mission. On the day of Pentecost, the task to evangelize the world began, was launched. The early church was filled with the famous fire of the Holy Spirit. That fire that we saw in Leviticus chapter 9. Likewise, we are commanded by Paul the Apostle to be filled with that same Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a command, Ephesians 5.18. But how can we be filled with that same Spirit that came upon the Apostles and caused the Israelites to bow face down in Leviticus 9? How can we be set on fire with that same famous, glorious power, Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit blazes like a furnace in our hearts when... Paul also says, when the word of Christ richly dwells within us. And so he says, be filled with the Spirit. How does that Holy Spirit empower us to do God's work 
How does the Holy Spirit fill us? When we simply dwell richly in the word of Christ. Great awakenings of the Holy Spirit are always birthed when men and women saturate themselves in the truth. There's one thing in common with all faithful gospelizers of every single age. There's one thing in common. All these men and women who saw masses of people come to faith through their ministry lived in the Word. The Bible was their bread. Before they ate literal bread, they would get up early, if they had to, to spend quality time with their Lord Jesus. It was a relationship. And as they indwelled, as they dwelled, sorry, with Jesus and enjoyed his presence, the gift of the Holy Spirit would continue to fill them with more and more radiance of glory. And so there's one thing in common with every faithful gospelizer of every age. They are full of the word. Their hearts are set ablaze with Bibline, Bible, in other words. Those who stir the embers of the heart with the truth of God are like bushfires. They scorch the world with gospel truth and then watch the shoots of new life emerge from the blackened soil. And so my encouragement for you today, if you want to be fruitful in ministry, if you want to be someone filled with the Spirit, not just at the time of regeneration, but constantly being filled more and more with the presence of Christ, Start a consistent daily Bible reading practice. Just do it. <laughs> do it. You don't need as much Netflix as what you think you do. <laughs> you don't need as much Facebook as you think you do. Just eat the word. Be disciplined. Get into your Bible. Get up earlier. Go to bed earlier. Let the word spoken from the mouth of God set your hearts ablaze with Bibline. And so we've learned about faithful fire in Leviticus. We've learned about famous fire at the end of Leviticus 9. Now we're coming to the bad news. Really, there's two fires in this section. There's a foreign fire and a furious fire. But since four points is probably getting too long, I'm going to bring them together and just look at foreign fire. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. There's a drastic shift in the narrative from triumph to tragedy. Israel had just enjoyed this thrilling mountaintop experience, but now it was replaced with a furious flame of judgment. And so what was God furious about? Well, Nadab... And Abihu lit a foreign strange fire in worship. Leviticus 10 verses 1. Look with me at the text. Chapter 10. Leviticus 10 verse 1. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put a fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord Contrary to this command, that word there, unauthorized, is often translated as foreign or strange. It was an out-of-place fire. And so how did they make the fire strange? What caused them to not light faithful fire 
rather than, why do they light this strange fire? Well, there's a clue if you move ahead to Leviticus 16, verses 1 to 2. Leviticus 16, verses 1 to 2. Let me read it. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the altar, or else he will die. And so we learn here that they, the, 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 what made the fire strange was that they approached the Lord, yes, but if you keep reading there, verse 2, don't come whenever you choose. <laughs> and so they likely started lighting fires in the right, at the right, at, sorry, the wrong time and at the wrong place. And as they were lighting these strange fires, these unauthorized fires, fury came upon them and they were consumed by God, the God of judgment. The fire was foreign and therefore furious because it was made at the wrong time and place. The sons of Aaron did not carefully follow God's holy instructions for the sacrifices. And so why did they make this mistake? Why did they make this mistake? Well, we know what they did, but why did they do it this way? Why didn't they follow the clear guidelines that Moses commanded them to follow? Why? Well, interestingly, as you continue to read through chapter 10, you come to verse 8 to 11, and it's all of a sudden talking about drinking. They were consumed and died. Then God directed Aaron and his sons not to drink alcohol whenever they went into the tent of meeting. Verse 9. In Leviticus 10, drinking and ministry were not a good combination. They often led to disaster. In fact, God describes it as deadly. The mind consumed by alcohol cannot distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Verse 10. Verse Fermented drink is a barrier from teaching also all the decrees the Lord has given. Verse 11. And so I want to pause and say, alcohol is a good gift from the Lord, but alcohol should be utilized with the greatest caution and wisdom, especially for those in ministry. Since making foreign fire was a matter of life and death, drinking on the job disqualified a person from their priestly ministry and likely led to this disaster. And so I'm using the language likely. They likely lit this faithful fire while being um, intoxicated. And the reason for that is right after this story in the text. There's this warning right after this event. But nevertheless, they're commanded not to drink wine, fermented drink when serving the Lord. And we can understand this when we think about drink driving. If you're drinking and driving, what might happen? Your vision gets blurry, right? And you're not able, your attention span's not as there. Your reaction time is dulled down. You're more likely to crash your car and even hurt someone who's innocent. What is more important than road safety? Any ideas? What is more important? Soul safety. Yeah. 
Therefore, it's not surprising that not driving, drinking while, sorry, it is not surprising that not drinking while serving is described as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. This is not just for Israel. This is actually for all generations who follow God. Because 1 Peter 4, 7 says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Sober-minded means free from intoxicating influences. Such a person has learnt the art of self-rule and is thus serious, sensible and composed in their ministry. A person who is sober-minded never has to fear of alcohol getting in the way of their servitude, in other words. If you are living on the edge and have to start thinking, oh, if I drink this third or fourth drink, what will that do if someone, for example, calls me right now? Will I be able to minister to that person? And the answer is no, that I likely shouldn't be drinking that much. Do you get the point? I think the church of Jesus Christ has gotten really loose on this issue. God has given us this gift, but it's an abused gift and often hinders people from being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. The person who is sober-minded is more protected from lighting strange fires in church. Their mind is free from the present and long-term effects of intoxication on the brain and body. And so I'm not just thinking about drinking in the present, but also the long-term effects of drinking on the screen. And I'm talking about like drinking every day. It can lead to long-term effects, even when you're not intoxicated, to confusion and disorientation, memory problems, poor judgment, decreased planning skills, mood and personality changes, cognitive decline, and also an inability to actually recognize how you affect other people. And that goes into the personality stuff. Alcoholics are more vulnerable to, therefore, false teaching and strange practices in the life of the church because their intellectual and mental decline is kind of blurred. Their their mental capacity is kind of blurred and they're not able to see as much rubbish that enters the church as someone who's free from the intoxicating effects of too much drinking. And so it might be a bit strange, but when I went into ministry, I actually had to do a test, a score test. And it was interesting, if I got over eight points on this test, and it was a medical examination, I would actually be disqualified from ministry. And you'd get four points for that test if you drunk at least one drink every day, because that was a sign of alcoholism, even one drink a day, because you're not able to break out and actually stop for a bit. And so it's actually quite easy to be considered an alcoholic, medically speaking. And so for me personally, I, I love a drink, I love a beer, I love a drink of, I, I love a, you know, a wine, but I actually came to the conclusion that it's not good for me to drink anymore, and I've actually stopped drinking, and I'm only drinking on special occasions, because I know that when you drink too much, it can actually cause massive effects in your ministry, um, particularly if someone does call you at 10 o'clock at night and wants to have a pastoral chat, which does happen. I need to always be ready to respond to different pastoral matters in my life and if I'm drinking three drinks four drinks then I'm not going to be able to engage with that person with wisdom but this practice that I'm sharing with you now applies to all ministers of the gospel you too are a priesthood of all believers and this wisdom is not just for ministers of the gospel here who are preaching each Sunday but for all the church of Jesus Christ we should all be using alcohol wisely 
Because when we use alcohol unwisely, we hurt the body of Christ and even become massive roadblocks to discipleship in the church of Jesus Christ and missions. And so men and women of the gospel must be uncontaminated to guard pure worship and sound doctrine in the church and at home. The sober-minded disciples not only more shielded from error, they are also more attuned to foreign fires being lit by others in the church. And so when a wolf is lurking in the shadows, his vision remains sharp. When, a, when new her heresies come and infiltrate the church, she is quick to respond to those issues. When he sees strange worship trends emerging and taking place in the church, he remains composed. But if the disciple is enslaved to sub substance abuse, if he or she cannot discern the difference between unclean and clean practices and doctrines, they must seek deliverance. And if you are someone here today who is struggling with alcohol addiction, I just want to share this warning from Scripture with you and invite you to respond today for deliverance. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10 says this, Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the idea is when we are set free, when we have been redeemed, we have been saved from these lifestyles. These are things that we now put away. These are idols that we turn away from to now walk the way of Jesus Christ. And so, for example, we do put away drunkenness. If we were addicted to alcohol before, we now put that away so that we can be sober-minded and live in the light of day rather than in the darkness of night. That is good biblical wisdom that leads to the good life. Also, another scripture to consider is Isaiah 28, verses 7 to 8. It talks about being swallowed by wine, staggering around from strong drink, and stumbling in giving judgment. If we seek deliverance from these issues, these addictions, these sins, we will begin to live in the light and seek to live a life that brings glory to our God rather than a life that threatens the church of Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite stories about deliverance from alcohol is my great role model. His name's William Perkins, and he lived kind of on the brink of the Reformation, like with those guys like um, Calvin and Kremner, who's the reformer from the Anglican Church. He served from within the Anglican Church and was known as the father of Puritanism. And I would like to share with you his conversion story. Um, one biographer wrote, the wildfire of his youth began to break out. He was profane and a prodigal and addicted to drunkenness. But he was awakened when he overheard a woman threatening her son in the street. Just imagine you coming out of a pub and hearing these words. She said, hold your tongue or I'll give you to that drunken Perkins no-hoper. Imagine that. You, a, your, a, a mother in the street saying to her son, don't be like that man. And Perkins didn't even realize that, um, she didn't even realize Perkins was standing there when she 
said those words, but hold your tongue or I'll give you to the drunken Perkins no hoper. He then repented and became a model of godliness who preached powerfully and lived his sermons. And like Perkins, we too can wake up from our spiritual sleepiness. We can bring all our failures, bring all our addictions and lay them down at the foot of the cross. We do not need to play with strange fire, dabble in unclean doctrine and follow the impure practices of backsliding church leaders. There is full deliverance from wildfire in the name of Jesus. God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. He has the power to deliver all who repent repent and believe the gospel, the unpolluted gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God wants you to conform to the image of Jesus Christ as Peter read out before in Colossians. God wants you to conform to that image. What in your life is being a barrier from you living wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ? What is that barrier? What is that substance that you are relying on? What is that idol that is stopping you from really doing what Christ desires you to do? What is the roadblock in your life? I do pray that God will liberate you so that you do not light light strange fires in his church, but rather faithful fires. And so to ask you this question, what fire are you making? Are you lighting faithful fire for the glory of God? When you look at your life, are you burning? Are you ablaze with the glory of Jesus Christ? Or are you dabbling with the coals of darkness, of foreign fire, and lighting strange, ungodly fires, and trying to even declare to people that this is godliness? Friends, Scripture is plain on this issue. I pray that the altar of your hearts will burn with faithful fire, all for the glory of Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us understand that your Holy Spirit is still at work in our lives. And we do pray that you make our hearts altars that burn bright for you. Lord, may we not put strange fire into our hearts, but may you fill our hearts with the fruit of your spirit and may you set it ablaze as we dwell all the more in your word. Make us conform to the image of Christ so that we will indeed be fruitful gospel men and women. All for your glory we pray. Amen. Let us sing this song, All Glory Be to Christ, and make this our response to what we've heard today, a prayer. Should now